sometimes sometimes when you have a sermon, uh, it feels necessary to include content warnings uh, because the Bible has some pretty frightening things in it sometimes, has some pretty frightening, uh, scary things in it. It also has some pieces that have maybe been weaponized against communities. And throughout history, uh, those in power have done bad things with the Bible, and they have hurt communities. And some of the passages I'm reading today have been weaponized against the LGBTQ2 plus community. And so anyone watching, I just... Uh, uh, I will do all I can to be as careful as I can. And if I get something wrong, please let me know, and I will try to do better in the future. Uh, I'm first of all going to read from 1 Corinthians 6, which you can follow along in the Pew Bible. Uh, it turns out the New International Version, which I have online, is different to the New International Version, which you have in your pews. There are many New International Versions. Who knew? Not me until today. And this is particularly important because I'm talking about translation, and they translate a word differently. So we're going to get all kinds of into that. So I'm going to read from my version, and y'all can see where the differences appear. So 1 Corinthians... 6, starting at verse 1, says this. If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? If you are to judge the world, you are not competent to judge. Are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life. Therefore, if you have any disputes about such matters, do ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned by the church. I say this to shame you. It is possible that there is nobody among you that is wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and your sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And we're going to read from Galatians 5.22 because that is an important passage to remember. And Galatians 5.22 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against those things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying 
one another. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the hearts of all of us here that our desire be to know you better, to know you more, to approach the Bible, to approach you, and to approach one another with humility and excitement about knowing more. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, so before I start, I'm going to start with some very, very easy questions. Very easy questions. These are not trick questions. You're free to shout out the answers to these questions. If I want an apple, what kind of tree should I plant? An apple tree, that's, yeah, it's like a tree, like, no, it's a sapling. No, 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 an apple tree. That's the answer I'm looking for. Okay, so, and along that vein, if I'm looking for an orange, what kind of tree should I plant? An orange, very, you guys are crushing this. Well, okay, last actual fruit. If I want a pear, what kind of tree should I plant? A pear, well done. Steve Goldie's just looking at me like, this guy is wasting my time right now. <laughs> so let's move on to fruits of the spirit. If I want, if the fruit that I want is love, what short sort of tree should I plant? Yeah, love. Yeah, that's right. There we go. We're getting there. If the, tr the fruit that I want is joy, what kind of tree should I plant? And should I have planted that tree? Yeah. All right, final one. If the fruit that I'm producing is gentleness, what sort of tree have I planted? Y'all are crushing this. Well done. All right. So today, we're going to be talking a little about the Corinthians verse. We're going to be talking a little bit about the fruits of the Spirit. A few weeks ago, Judy shared a very powerful message about the church's treatment of the LGBTQ2 plus community and the fact that the fruits that it has borne has looked very different to the fruits of the Spirit. To talk about fruits and trees a little bit longer. If the fruit that I'm producing is broken homes, if it's self harm, if it's isolation and suicide, if it's driving people away from the truth that they are absolutely loved by Jesus, what kind of tree have I planted? Should I have planted it? Because I, I want to be clear, those things are more prevalent amongst the queer community than outside of it. And those numbers only go up when those people come from Christian households. So is that a tree that God wants us to continue giving water and light? How can we be doing something that God wants us to do when instead of seeing the fruits of the Spirit, we're seeing so many people hurt and driven away and abandoned. Because I'll just, I'll come out from the start and we'll kind of work our way back. 
where I continue to be convinced that an affirming stance towards the queer community is the godly one and is the biblical one are the fruits that we have sinned for so long. When we see fruits of hatred instead of love, when we see fruits of misery instead of joy, when we see fruits of strife instead of peace, when we see fruits of cruelty instead of kindness, when we see fruits of harshness instead of gentleness, all of these polar opposites to the fruits of the Spirit. For me, it means this cannot be the will and the desire of God. It means the Spirit of God is not moving. Judy mentioned briefly <laughs> that for so long, Christians seem to have been very inflexible, welcoming and loving everyone the way that we're supposed to, based on what is ultimately a poor translation of quite a complicated and a weird word. And so we're going to talk about that today as well. But let's be clear, we do this because we take the Bible seriously. I arrive where I do precisely because I take the Bible seriously. But to take something seriously, to love something, that means we don't just take it at face value. That's not what loving someone or something is. As, as an example, um, some of you will know, I'm not always the great, the very best at expressing myself. I don't communicate my emotions effectively. Uh, and so when Emily, who's my girlfriend, asks me how I'm doing uh, and I've had a bad day, I will say, I am okay, and I leave it at that. Now, if love was simply taking someone at face value, then Emily would have no more questions to ask. James says he's okay, I've got nothing more to ask him. End of story. But because Emily knows me, because Emily cares about me, and because Emily loves me, she gently digs deeper. She asks me, are you sure? Because she knows how I am, how things affect me. She wants to spend time with me. She wants to know how I'm really feeling. She knows that if I've had a rough day, I'm probably going to want to talk about it. It just doesn't always come out immediately. Love requires us to dig deeper. Loving someone or loving something also, excitingly for me, involves spending time with them. And I think, I think we all know this intuitively, right? Like We all know that knowing someone means spending time with them. We know that loving something means enjoying them and putting the time in. But for some reason, the Bible is something that maybe we've been encouraged to take its face value for too long. And, and to be clear, like I, I blame pastors for this more than anyone. <laughs> uh, too many pastors aren't excited by questions, aren't excited by having their authority or their opinions questioned, and, and they don't want people to dig deeper, but, but I promise you I do. I want to keep having these conversations with all of you. We should want to spend more time with the Bible and, and not simply just take someone else's word for what it means. When we read the Bible, why isn't it we ask these questions like, what was happening when it was written? Who was writing it? Who has it been written to? What else was going on? 
because not only do they more fully help us understand the Bible, which is a wonderful thing, digging deeper will have us give us a more complete understanding of the heart of God. And, and there's nothing better than that. So in an effort to dig a bit deeper today and to know our God more completely, I'm going to be looking at this passage that I read at the start of the sermon. And if this is hard to hear, that's okay. Because we're still a community and we're still a family and we get to talk and we get to disagree and we get to honor one another through those things. Knowing God's heart is often hard, but it's always, always worth it. So as I mentioned at the start, I read out my translation of the NIV, which if you go on like Bible Gateway, which is what I use for sermons, uh, that's the translation. So there's another, you know what, there's three translations. Two of these translations are regularly found in a pastor's office, which is the NIV, which is what we have in our pews. The other is the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. You know, you find that uh, it's a bit more scholarly. It's, it's not as fun to read, frankly. But let's just read verse 9 and notice the subtle differences between these two translations, between the NIV and the NASB. The NIV says... Do you not know wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. Whereas the NASB says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, that's the same, or idolaters, that's the same, or adulterers, that's the same, nor homosexuals. Notice the subtle difference there. One contemporary Bible translation says it's homosexuals who will not inherit the kingdom, whereas another says it's men who have sex with men, and those two things do not always overlap. Just, just to dig deeper, because I, I kind of found this fun when, when I was researching this, the King James Version, which is not a version we tend to use around here because the language is a little bit antiquated now, uh, it says this, Know ye not! that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, no, sorry, idolaters, it can same again, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. So in just these three very, very popular translations, we have homosexuals, we have men having sex with men, and we have abusers of themselves with mankind. And uh, if any of you know what that last one means, let me know. But lightness aside, there's some really frightening implications here. A teenager who might be struggling with their, to come to terms with their sexuality is may open a Bible, or more likely, let's be honest, Google it. And Google, what does the Bible say about being homosexual? And it's possible the first page that comes up is the NIV. And this teenager may think, well, okay, that's not great news, but at least as long as I'm not 
acting too homosexual, I can get away with it. As long as I remain celibate, I'm okay. Whereas, if the first page that comes up is the NASB, and it strictly just says homosexuals won't inherit the kingdom, well, then there's no hope. You see how translation matters so much. So, like, how do we get here? I, and that's the kind of interesting question for me. How does this one word vary really heavily from translation to translation? Especially when all three agree that idolaters and adulterers and sexually immoral aren't going to make it in. Like, this is a sermon for another day. But it's interesting to me that all agree on those words and yet none agree on this one. And, and here's the thing. There's a kind of simple answer to this. And it's simple, but it's difficult. <laughs> and the reason why they have such a varied translation is that we just don't know what the word that they're trying to translate here means. Paul uses the word arsenokoitai. My Greek is not good, so please don't press me too hard on this. This is all stuff I've read from other people. But most reasonable scholars will say, they're not sure what to do with that. And I, and I mean scholars representing all perspectives will say, yeah, like, we don't really know what to do with this word. And the more traditionally minded scholars will say they think that it is relevant to the conversation and it does include gay men today. And progressive scholars will argue that it isn't relevant to gay men today, but neither has really much of a grip as to what the word means. Breaking down this word that we find in 1 Corinthians 9 a little bit more helps a little, but it doesn't help that much, actually. Uh, it literally translates as, like, male better, man better. Uh, so it seems that Paul probably has some sort of same-sex sin in mind. But, again, this word just kind of doesn't exist. But what is interesting about this word, arsenokoitai, is when that word is used elsewhere in different writings around the time, which, as I say, is really rare. We're talking like a few times over the century. It refers to not sexual sin, but economic exploitation, and sometimes a combination of both. Uh, in the Acts of John, which is a second century text which is used by early Christians, Arsenokoitai is listed alongside poisoners and swindlers and robbers. So, so people exploit others for money. What's more interesting is that the Acts of John does actually have a separate list for sexual sins, and Arsenokoitai doesn't appear on it. So it's kind of strange. The word is used elsewhere to describe a kind of probably what's best a forced prostitution, I suppose, uh, or sex trafficking. So this combination of economic and sexual exploitation. And, and you know what? Those themes come up an awful lot in the Bible. The Bible has a lot to say about the wrongness of sexual exploitation, and it has even more to say about the wrongness of economic exploitation. So it makes sense. Those profiting over the sexual exploitation of men are probably not going to be looked on too favorably.
So, so the cold hard truth is that I don't know what arsenokoitai means, uh, but that's okay. Because whilst there are lots of fruits of the spirit that we heard about earlier, certainty is not one of the fruits of the spirit. It's okay to be humble, and it's okay to say that we don't know. So I, I can't be sure of what Paul meant when he wrote it. But I can be sure of one thing that it doesn't mean, actually. We don't need to be right to know that someone else is wrong sometimes. But one word I am absolutely convinced that Arsenokoitoi does not mean is homosexuality. And the reason for this is that it can't mean homosexuality. And the reason for that is because homosexuality as a concept did not exist 2,000 years ago. It just didn't. The idea that a man or a woman could be born with an exclusive romantic attraction to someone of the same gender, that wasn't an option for Paul to talk about. I, I talked about this a little a couple of years ago. I don't want to spend too much time here. And whilst 2,000 years ago there were plenty of same-gendered sex acts happening, it was far more about power and dominance and control. There was no such thing as sexual orientation the way that we understand it now. So like, imagine, as, as an example of this, imagine when I'm reading out the lists of sins in Corinthians 9, do not, uh, there we go, do you not know uh, that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, or those that look at their cell phone during the church service. Now, there's a couple of issues here, and lots of people need their phones to like focus. It's okay, I'm not really condemning you for that. But amongst the many problems, most of you are probably sharp enough to know that Paul is, doesn't know what a cell phone is. I've definitely like put that in there. <laughs> you would know there's no way that Paul could have written about cell phones, because there's just no reference for it. They don't exist back then. And so it is with homosexuality 2,000 years ago. It's a complete anachronism to assert that Paul could have thought about homosexuality the way that we do now. As I say, the same-gendered sex acts in Paul's time would have been exploitative and controlling, and they would have produced bad fruit. They wouldn't have produced the fruits of the Spirit. And that's what Paul's thinking about. If he's thinking about things that produce bad fruit, no, we don't want to be doing those things. But he wouldn't have been thinking about homosexuality the way that we do today. Like, he, he just couldn't. He wouldn't be thinking, as I do, about my friends who like, spend time together and call each other honey over the dinner table and like pour their heart and their love and their wages into keeping their cats alive because they just love them too much. It's a place where the fruits of the spirit are on full display. That was an expression available to Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians. And so it's why I think it's careless at best and at worst, incredibly destructive to read 1 Corinthians in this way. 
We know that whatever we should be planting should yield fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. And to me, it's so clear that our interpretation of this word that no one really understands has yielded a very different fruit. And if we don't know what the word means, but the fruits that it produced have been the opposite of what we should expect where the Spirit is present, surely we've been getting it wrong. Like when I look at an orange, I know it can't have come from an apple tree. When I look at the suffering and the pain in the LGBTQ2 plus community, I know that it can't have come from the heart of God. And, and a tree that isn't producing fruits of the Spirit is a, a tree I can't water anymore. So when people ask me uh, if it's possible to preach something that looks more traditional, that's, that's why I can't do it. it. Kind of the same that I won't preach a message that has a more traditional role of women, uh, despite there being plenty of biblical passages about why I should do so. It's why I won't preach a sermon condemning mixed-race marriages, despite there being plenty of biblical passages for me to do so. Also, if I preach against like mixed-race marriages here, most of the old white dudes will be like dead within the weeks. <laughs> but we sin the fruits of sexism, and we sin the fruits of racism, and we sin the fruits of our treatment of the queer community, and they tell us all we need to know about them not being trees that God wants us to plant or to water. All, all I want, all I really want, is, is for people to know God's heart better. That's all I want. Like the heart of the Father that, that runs towards his messed up child when they crawl home. Or the heart that like breaks again and again over the unkindnesses that we do to one another, but forgives us anyway because God delights in doing exactly that. And, and all I can see is, is this translation has put up so many barriers between people knowing God's heart better, and, and I want to tear those barriers down. So, like, I don't know how to end this. Like my, my heart is that this place be, uh, be a space where people know that they're loved and know that they're welcomed. But we can only do that if we are honest about the ways that we've kept people out, about our thoughts and attitudes that have hurt people. We can only do that by listening to the community better. And, and that's going to be, like, it's going to be painful, right? But, but growth is. Growth, like, growing pains are a thing, and then pruning hurts too. But, but I think it's worth it. We did weeks and weeks on loving our neighbor And if we're going to love our neighbor in Toronto in 2022 and going forward, I just don't see any other way.
but I think this can be positive and beautiful too. I don't mean it to be negative. I think as we hear more voices, voices from places we haven't been able to listen in the past, we will fully understand our brother and our sister and our sibling. Every single human being is created in the image and likeness of God. And so we need to hear from every single human being to have a more complete understanding of what God is like. So, so that's what I want to do. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the hearts of everyone listening. I pray that all of us know you better. I pray for where there may be damage, where there may be hurt, that you restore it, that you heal it. Lord, I pray that above all things we be bound in your love. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.